But today, I told you I was going to talk about an important missionary and the impact that they have on the world around them. And I want to use the word missionary in a very broad sense today. Because the missionary that I'm talking about is you. Because whatever it is in life that we end up having as our profession, that is not our ultimate calling. And no matter what profession we end up as, our calling in life is to be the people that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to those with whom God has entrusted to our circle. And so we've been talking over the last three weeks about uh, great missionaries of the past. Jim Elliott, who was uh, killed for his faith. Eric Liddell, who ran and then went to China as a missionary. The wife, who went to the Far East with her husband in order to serve the Lord. But what we always talk about is the back end of their lives. When we know their names, when we know Ann Hudson, and we know Jim Elliott and Eric Liddell, what we don't talk about is that before that, they were just ordinary people, most of them, who decided to follow the direction of the Lord. And there's a little part that's a turning point in the history of the church that happens at the end of Acts 7 and the beginning of Acts 8, and it involves ordinary people. We'll talk in a minute about two of them that are mentioned, but there are also others that are not. And it starts with what looks like a terrible moment in the life of the church, and yet it is a moment that is a catalyst for ordinary people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 7 starts in verse 54, all the way towards the end of that chapter. So I know if I told you Acts 7, you got there, you got to get to the end of the chapter. And we are jumping into a story that has been building for the entire chapter where Stephen is being confronted and being accused of blasphemy and being accused of following Jesus, which of course is true. In chapter 7, verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, that's the people that are gathered around, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, I don't know what that physically looks like. I've never, I don't think, seen people gnash their teeth at me. But it is not supposed to be a good picture. Then Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look! I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. This literally looks like a large mob of people that are acting like a toddler when they don't want to hear you. They put their fingers in their ears and just talk loudly. But their intentions are much more sinister hopefully, than that toddler. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Now, this is an important turning point in the history of Christianity because what happens next is of vital importance. 
This is the first time post-Jesus when we see someone violently killed for proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And it very easily, and what was intended, the intention of these people in killing Stephen was to do what to Christianity? To end it. To stamp it out. To get rid of, according to them, this heretical cult of Jewish people who had followed a false Messiah. And yet verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that it got worse from there. Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now, there are a couple of things that are important about that we'll talk about in just a moment. But what's interesting here is that Stephen is killed and Saul, who we know the rest of the story, becomes the greatest church planner in the history of the world is encouraging them and ravaging them. In fact, that's the word used in verse 3. We're not quite there yet, but they were ravaging the church. And all of the followers of Christ, except for the apostles, are scattered throughout the land. Verse 2 tells us devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him, that they took some time to mourn what was going on. Verse 3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And so it's gotten worse. Stephen was killed, and now they are going door to door, pulling Christians out and imprisoning them under the authority of the Jewish religious leadership. And what happens next determines the fact that you and I are in this room more than likely. Under the leadership and providence of God, it says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip, as an example, went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And as they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So at this turning point in history... A group of people who had been scattered because of persecution went, and I love how it says it, on their way preaching the word. Here's what we have discovered, that the movement of God in our world is most often carried out by a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally to bring joy to those around them through word and deed of Christ. Ordinary. Here's what I think is interesting in this passage. Stephen is killed. The first one killed for their faith is not an apostle. In fact, Stephen was mentioned in the chapter before this because he was part of the group, as was Philip that we'll talk about in a minute, who were elected by the people, gathered by the people, approved by the people to basically do some pastoral care, some tasks, because the apostles had too much going on and needed help in that particular area and some administration of the food to the widows in the church. And it was a pastoral care issue. It was an administration issue. And the apostle says, 
this. We have to give ourselves to prayer and preaching of the word. And so they elected men called deacons, servants, who went and did that in the church. The next chapter we find out that one of those elected was the first martyr officially for the faith of Christianity. But before that, we didn't know his name. Philip's name is given to us in chapter 6. We find it out again at the end of this chapter. But what I find fascinating is that it just kind of says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Who's those? Well, we know of Philip and we know of Stephen, but those are the only two we know of, and the rest of them are nameless to history. Ordinary people who, when pushed out of their comfort zone, proclaimed the truth of Jesus. And I believe that it's intentional for us to understand that because it specifically says, except for the apostles. Why that detail? Why is that there? It's because it is there to show us that the apostles were not the ones leading this outward movement of the church. By the way, you got your Bibles open there. We just read it. Where does it say they were pushed? From Jerusalem to where? Judea and Samaria, right? Y'all remember Acts 1-8? And you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. God actually used the persecution that the Jewish people were bringing against the Christians to push them to those first two places that were a part of where they were supposed to go. Now, when I use the word ordinary, I don't mean that as a derogatory term at all. In fact, there are some things about this that help us understand that even ordinary followers of Jesus Christ are extraordinary people. Acts 1-8 shows us that we are the witnesses and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And if we are followers of Christ, then our goal and our task is to go to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the Gospels, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says he is the greatest among those born of women. But he says John the Baptist would be the least among those in the kingdom of God. So that's ordinary people, not the apostles. A lot of unnamed people spreading the gospel who word and deed, both are necessary. It talks about they were preaching, and then it tells us a little bit about Philip and his deeds. And in our lives, it is absolutely necessary that we go both with word, the gospel truth, the right belief about who God is, about what he is doing in our lives, about how he has come to save us. But then it also is accompanied by the right actions. Now, in this particular thing, there are miraculous actions, but the word for them are actually not miracles. It is signs. Signs are always things that point to something else. And it was understood that the miracles were not to be miracles unto themselves. They were to be signs that pointed us to an understanding of who God is. The same is true for our lives and the deeds that come from our lives. We are to proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is, but we are to, in our actions, in our daily walk, and in the things God does in and through us, they are to be signs to people around us of who God truly is. And this is what I find interesting. It says that through all of this, there was great joy in that city of Samaria because of the work God was doing through Philip. How was their joy? Well, lives were changed. Barriers were broken. 
Where does it say Philip was ministering at this time? What city was it? What city was it? Samaria, right? Now we know about Samaria. We think about Samaria when we talk about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we talk about the differences there. And there were differences. But we see the barriers being broken down because of what God is doing there. And as I read this passage, as I look at what's happening here, there are just a couple of things that I pull from this for us to understand about the calling that God has on our lives. And the first thing that we need to see from this passage of Scripture is this, is that God wants to use you. Almost putting parentheses out there. Yes, you. And that is both the singular you individually, God wants to use you, and the southern plural y'all. God wants to use us as individuals and as a church to make a difference and to bring joy to the city and the country and the world in which we live. Historically, ordinary believers like Stephen and those who followed after Stephen have been the tip of the spear for the movement of God among the nations. We could bring out name after name of people that you may have heard of or thought of, but there are thousands of others that have been at the forefront of the movement of God whose names we will never know because they were ordinary believers doing what God called them in the moment to take the gospel to the nations. One historian says that about the first century Christians, the only thing more remarkable than the rapidity of the spread of the gospel in the first century was the anonymity of those who did it. I just find it fascinating, even just a couple of chapters later over in Acts chapter 11, uh, they are planting the church of Antioch, which has become a a pretty well-known and influential church. And in verse 19, it just says, Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they went there trying to build relationships with the Jews about Jesus. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Let me ask you a question. Is there a name of anybody that was a part of the movement at the church of starting Antioch? Barnabas goes after the fact. Do you notice the pronouns that are used throughout? It's them. In other words, guys you wouldn't recognize, people you wouldn't know, these are ordinary people that have built the church in Antioch. It says again and again, God was with them, God used them. Barnabas was pleased with what he saw from them and encouraged them to remain true. That means that God is doing a movement in the place through ordinary believers. Over the last... uh, couple of years it feels like in particular but this has been true for a while it just seems like as christians we like and i say that as a kind of a collective term we like to put people on pedestals and say look and follow them and use their name and put them in public and then when they crash and they fall we take a hit because of the 
truthfulness of what we believe because of who we put forward. I was talking to Ryan Coatney. Some of you know Coat that was here, did children's work with us for a while. He's planning a church in Nashville. I was talking to him one day about something. We were talking about a story that was in the news. And I don't remember what the story was, but I'll remember him saying this. There has never been a better time in history to not be famous than now. That the pressures and all of that is too much. And we began to have a discussion about the fact that God is and will use people that have no desire to be famous. To accomplish his task. And we need ordinary believers, lay people, you, to pick up the banner of what God's called you to do and to run with it. To use what God has already gifted you with to share the gospel. To see your profession or your family as a part of your mission to share the gospel. I was reading this week about the need to reach the 1040 window, that that, uh, window in the world where most people that have never heard the gospel live. And if you add up all the evangelical missionaries, all the people that kind of believe at least the basics of what we believe and that are evangelistic about it, telling people about Jesus, that if you add up all the evangelical missionaries that are in the 1040 window from the denominations and groups and all of that, you'll get somewhere around 40,000 evangelical missionaries that are living in that 240 window, 1040 window working there, which is awesome. That's awesome to celebrate. If you begin to then look at the statistics, though, that there are Millions of Americans that live in that 1040 window that are not there as missionaries. In fact, the number is somewhere around 2 million. And if we take the statistics out there that say what percentage of Americans are believers, and we account for the fact that when you're called on the phone and actually answer, and you answer the questions instead of just hanging up quickly, that you may not give fully truthful answers, or your grandfather's grandmother was a Christian, and so that's what you affiliate with, and you begin to get realistic numbers down, and even say that 10% of those people that are living overseas in the 1040 window that are Americans are believers, that means we have a missionary force that could be active of around 200,000 more. And there are people that are doing exactly that. A guy that has moved to North Africa to open a CrossFit gym in order to spread the gospel. A man who is a head of an engineering firm in Southeast Asia that is there to work but to spread the gospel. A lady who's an elementary school teacher in a foreign country that is close to the gospel but is helping to spread the word. A lady that's a textile executive that has taken a job overseas specifically because she wants to share the gospel with people in the area around the plant where she will work. A former firefighter who has moved to Central Asia to build wells and share the gospel. The current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, says that our lives ought to be looked at through this lens. Whatever God made you good at, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Whatever it is that God has made you good at, do it well with all your heart for the glory of God and then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. 
The second truth that I see in this passage is that we need to tap into as a part of following Christ is that God has filled us. Notice Stephen's confidence. They begin gnashing their teeth. They begin making bad signs. They're rushing him. And the whole time he is standing firm. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing there. They yelled at the top of their tongues. They're dragging out and stoning him. And he is confident in the face of death, saying, Lord, receive my spirit and do not hold this against them. What's interesting is the confidence that Stephen has comes from the fact that the most apt description of him in the Bible, in the scripture, is that he was Filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit of God was in him and filling him and giving the strength to say and the words to say. John 16, 7a is one of the most remarkable verses. We've talked about this verse here in worship and sermons in the past and Bible studies here in the church. In John chapter 16, verse 7, at the first part of that verse it says... That Jesus is getting ready to go away and he says, it's better for you to go, for me to go away for you because God will do greater things in you because I have gone away. And that has to be tied to the Spirit of God being in the life of believers. In Acts, the Spirit is mentioned 59 times and in 36 of those instances he's speaking. It doesn't tell us exactly how he speaks in any of those particular times, but it tells us that he speaks And that people respond, and when they respond, God moves. God has filled us with the power to do what he's called us to do. Third thing that we see in this passage is that we need to live a life that speaks Jesus. We need to carry his name. When Stephen is at the point of death, he says two things. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this against them. I don't know if you're somebody that knows the Bible or has read the Bible, but if you are, those two sound very familiar. And that is because when Jesus was on the cross, some of his last words were, Lord, into my hands I commit my spirit, and Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Stephen is declaring in that moment that he is being unjustly killed just like his Savior. And that he is carrying the name of Jesus with him. He is being killed literally for proclaiming his name. So we carry the name of Jesus. We put it as a part of our lives. We are his ambassadors on this earth. Through the ways that we show compassion. Through the ways that we show love. Yes, but also through the way we speak about Him. Romans makes it pretty clear that they cannot believe if they have not heard, and they cannot hear if someone doesn't tell them, and they cannot be told if someone is not sent. So part of our task on this earth is speaking the name of Jesus. He's telling them about Him. By most estimations, there are around 2.8 to 3 billion people on this planet who have not heard the name of Jesus ever. In Yemen alone, there are 8 million people that live there, and they believe that there are about 20 to 30 Christians total. 
Martin Luther once said that Jesus could die on the cross a thousand times, and if nobody heard about it, it would not make a difference for us. Carl Henry, Carl F. Henry said that the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. When I think about the sacrifice that Jesus made to bring salvation to us, the question that I ask myself is, what sacrifice have I made to see the nations come to him? And here's the last thing I see in this passage, and then we're done. Jesus is absolutely worth it. There's this picture when Stephen is being killed that he says, look, I see. This made him really, really mad because it equated the fact that he was looking at Jesus and that was the same place as God. But there's an interesting little detail in there when it says that the Son of Man was standing at the right hand of God. And that's interesting because almost every other place we see in Scripture, when it talks about Jesus at the right hand of God, what is he doing? He's sitting He is seated on the throne. He is sitting. He is making intercession for us sitting. But in this particular moment, Stephen says that when he looked up, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And there's lots of discussion about that. It's an odd little point. But I think, and the consensus is, and I believe this as well, that the reason he is standing is twofold. One is that he is preparing to receive Stephen, as Stephen is about to pray, God receive my spirit. But secondly, I believe that he has risen to stand in honor and support and alongside this one that is standing for him. Man, there is a lot of stuff, and we talked about some of this stuff last week. There is a lot of stuff in this life that we can invest our time and our money and our energy in that is not worth it. And I'm not talking about a ROI and a bottom line in your investment portfolio. I'm talking about in the end, when the time comes and you are facing eternity, as Stephen was here, there are lots of things in our lives that will not be worth it. I really don't think we're going to sit around heaven talking about the cars we drove. Or the houses we had. And everything that we have in heaven is going to be superior to anything we have here. So it's going to feel weird to brag about that brand new car you bought. I don't know if there are cars in heaven, but whatever. We're riding on, driving on, flying around. Our bodies are just maybe flying around, all right? Nobody's going to go, yeah, I remember that old Mustang. I know, I got you. I got a couple of you there. (laughs) The house we had, the bonus room, all the things that we built up for ourselves. In the end, they fail us. There's a meme I saw like three times this week on social media. You know, I don't know how those things cycle around and they'll go away. I'd seen it before, but it was cycling around this week. And it was a picture of a shack that looked like something in the slums of like what I've seen um, on the news when I've been in Brazil, the the favelas around Rio or Sao Paulo, you had that. And then next to it was this huge mansion that was either European or American. They had those two pictures side by side. And then the next two pictures underneath 
were the exact same six-foot grave dug. It says, doesn't matter what you live in in this life, this is all where we end up. Now, I don't know if it was written from a Christian perspective or not, because we know that that's not the end. That the grave for those that are believers in Jesus Christ is not the end. That the grave for those that don't believe is not the end either. That they will spend an eternity separated from God. But the point is, of all the things in life that you can give yourself to completely, Jesus is the one that is worth it. So what do we do with that? Then we go on mission. Locally, domestically, internationally. We give to missions. We give to mission projects. We give to see young people come to know Jesus Christ through camps. We give in the winter to the International Mission Board and those that are there. We pray for all that is happening there. We pray for missionaries that we know, like we had speak here just a few weeks ago. We give and we pray and we go. I believe that God is looking for people that are willing to do whatever it takes and go wherever He calls from ordinary people, lay people. In this part of the world, we talk about how crazy the housing market is, and it is absolutely nuts. I mean, that's a weird thing to amen, but it is nuts. And perhaps what God is intending to do with some of that is for some people in this area, in this market, in this church, to take advantage of that, to be able to liquidate the asset they have in order to use that to go overseas or to help a church plant or church start somewhere with NAM here in the States, to help an international missionary overseas that is looking for someone to partner with him in business, to divulge yourselves of the things here at the top of the market in order to see God use it for the glory of his name. We joke about around here, well, I could sell at a huge price, but I can't find anything. Well, maybe it's because you're not supposed to find anything around here. Maybe you're supposed to find something in India or in Africa or Brazil. Maybe it is that Nam has got a church plant that God's calling you to be a part of. We need a movement of people grasp onto the true calling of their lives no matter what their profession is and they're going to use whatever God's called them whatever God has gifted them whatever they're good at they're going to work hard at it for the glory of God in a place strategically being used by God for his kingdom so what does that mean for you how are you a part of God's global mission And what have you actually sacrificed to be a part of that? And will you hear the Spirit's calling and nudging and do what He's called us to do? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to be here, to celebrate. Lord, we realize that we have a very comfortable environment to do that in. Padded seats, air-conditioned place. And Lord, we're thankful and grateful for that. Lord, we pray that we would use this time and this place as a launching pad for what you've called us to do in your world. We pray that you will give us wisdom 
about the areas that we need to encounter and to go into. I pray, Lord, for people in this room that have gifts and talents and career paths, Lord, that could be used for your glory in another place, another part of the world, with a team in a strategic city or country. Lord, I pray for our young people that as they're thinking about what you have for them in the years ahead, Lord, that that they would consider how you're training them, how they're being trained, and how they can use that for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as adults, to our teenagers, to our children and our preschoolers, Lord, and that they would hear your voice directing them. And we pray, Lord, for people to be called out of this church to be used in places that are in desperate need of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be open to doing whatever it is that you've called us to do, wherever you have called us to do it. And that we would just be willing, Lord, to say yes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.